The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. So if you would, turn in your Bibles this morning to a very, very obscure, maybe minor prophet, the book of Obadiah. Now, if you're backtracking from the New Testament... The 12 minor prophets are at the end of the Old Testament. And so you'll have Hosea, Joel, and Amos, and then Obadiah. It's only 21 verses, one chapter, so it might just be one page in your Bible. But uh, that's what we'll be looking at today. And we'll actually do the whole chapter today, the whole book of Obadiah. It's, it's short enough and direct enough, but it is very important. What it lacks in length, it makes up for in message. So as we're thinking about that, I want to tell you a little brief story from my childhood. I grew up with one slightly older sister. Uh, Two grades, but not quite two years. So I think 20 months older, but two grades ahead in school all the way through. And So um, growing up, our bedrooms in the house were side by side and as difficult as this may have been I didn't realize it as much then as I look back now and see that was a problem we shared a bathroom Uh, so you see who got the short end of that stick she's always in the bathroom with the door locked and you know taking forever so anyway my sister and I fought a lot. I always told people when I was younger that the only time we really started getting along well is when she left to go to college because then she wasn't in the house. So I had uh, two more years of high school and she was gone so then everything's fine because I didn't see her every day and we didn't have the opportunity I guess to argue. Now I will tell you this, I love my sister and I'm pretty sure she loves me. But uh, back then, growing up, we were just always fighting, always arguing. Not and and I, and I don't know if anybody else had a, a sibling of the opposite sex. I mean, it's different when you it's all brothers or all sisters. But when you have a, bro- a brother and sister, boy and a girl, it's it's just a different kind of fighting, you know. And so uh, there there came a day when my father. Man, I hope my father and my sister both watch this video. This is going to be hilarious. Uh, so there came a day when my father had had enough. He was so sick of us arguing and fighting back and forth. And I think at this time I was, I think she was 14, I was 12, roughly. So I was already taller than her at that point. But he, he had just, he was sick of it. Sick of the arguing. So he said, look... Y'all just quit playing around. If you're going to fight, come in here and fight. And so he brought us into the, the living room and had a big you know, open, open area there. He said, quit, quit messing around. If you, go ahead, fight. And so my sister stood there and he said, fight. So I punched her in the face. Well... She started crying, and then I started crying, 
I, I didn't know why at the moment. I'm like, why? I just wanted to fight. Why am I upset? But I, I didn't realize, and then this was my, I think this was my dad's whole plan. I didn't realize until I hurt her, I didn't realize really what was going on. All that arguing and fighting, but then when I actually really hurt her, I, I was upset. And see, here's what I learned years, years later. Siblings fight. It's a fact of life. But when it comes to an outside force, that's a whole different story. If, now, it's okay for me to fight with my sister. But somebody else say something about my sister, you might as well leave town. It's, it's, it's going to be over. Right? Because I, I will fight her and maybe I want to kill her sometimes. Figuratively speaking. But I'll fight for her all the time. And I'll, I'll defend her against somebody else every time. You know, we, we have our quirks, we have our problems, and that's fine. And that's in-house. Does that make sense? But when it comes to the outside world, it's a different story. That's how it's supposed to work. Okay? So I tell you that story uh, because it's an interesting part of my childhood, but also it has a direct bearing on this short prophecy from Obadiah because... One of the themes that's running through this short prophecy is the conflict between Jacob and Esau, the sons of Isaac. And the consequences of conflict between two brothers, twin brothers. One that was following after God, one that was not. And what consequences do those two different life directions hold? And how does that affect us? So I, I just want to kind of set that into the background because the title of the message today is My Brother's Keeper. And we'll see how God related to these two uh, lines, family lines, based on Jacob and Esau, where Esau is represented in the text as the, the country Edom, E-D-O-M, Edom. That's a, a representation of Esau's family line. Okay, so I think that's all the background we need to set here. Let me read the text here. Obadiah, uh, like I said, it's one chapter, 21 verses. We'll read it all, and there's just a, a few sections here within this text that we need to, to follow through and see how it affects us. Here's what the Bible says. Obadiah, verse 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord... And an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, let us go against her for battle. <clears throat> Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle... 
Though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you or men of your covenant, they will send you forth to the border. And the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame, and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. And do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. <clears throat> yes, you... Do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster, and do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives, and do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as they had never existed. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape. And it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be as stubble, and they will set them on fire and consume them, so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau, and those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria. And Benjamin will possess Gilead. And the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Father, in Jesus' name I pray that you will please speak clearly to us today. Help us to understand, and Lord, help us to see the truth that you have for us and, and be able to apply that to our lives, and that we wouldn't just uh, pass over this uh, minor prophecy, as it's called, but that we would, we would really see the importance 
as it pertains to us and our response to you. So Lord, speak to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, there's three sections, three paragraphs in this text. And the first two, all the way down to verse 14, really kind of paint a picture of us for uh, a prideful people and how that leads them into a sinfulness against their brother. So the, the whole first two paragraphs from verse 1 to verse 14 are going to really show us uh, almost an example of what not to do, how not to behave, and, and the, the consequences of these mistakes. And it's not until we get to verse 15, the last section from verse 15 to verse 21, that we'll really see, uh, um, I guess, a, a more clear uh, description of what, what's going to happen. Now, here's the result for those who did not follow God and who did not uh, treat God's people well. Here's the result for those who stayed on the path of following the Lord and didn't veer off. Uh, despite what was going on. And so there's, there's two paths. There's two sets of consequences. So I think just from that general description, we ought to be able to st start seeing uh, a clear application to our lives. There's, there's two ways to live. There's two pathways to follow. One of them leads to life. One of them leads to death. And so I, I pray it's going to become much more evident which is which. The first part of this prophecy, verse 1 to 9, starts off talking about the pride of Edom or Esau. Remember, that represents Esau's family line. Now, if you just, for a moment, go back to the book of Proverbs. You know, Proverbs is such a great wealth of wisdom and knowledge. Well, Proverbs chapter uh, 16 and verse 18 says this, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Well, that's uh, some foreshadowing there. It's, it's almost prophetic in the way that Jacob and Esau related to one another because the whole first nine verses of this section here in Obadiah talk about three particular areas of pride for Edom that led to their fall. The first one is their impregnable defenses. They, they thought they were so powerful. They so, thought that nothing could hurt them. If you read the text, just think about the attitude that's present in this group of people with relation to not just God, but anybody. Anybody around them. You look at verse 3. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, the loftiness of your dwelling places. So we live up in these real strong, well-built fortresses, in, you know, rocks and walls and whatnot. And, and look at the last line in verse 3. Who's going to bring us down to earth? They say in their heart, we're, we're, a, we're, we're so well set up here, nobody can mess with us. And that's, that's a prideful feeling. You know what it reminds me of? The Titanic. And I'm not talking about the movie. I'm talking about the, the historical truth of that ship. Do you remember what the engineers and the architects and the builders of that ship said before it set sail? A famous line. 
God Himself couldn't sink this ship. You remember that? They actually said that. And it's almost as if God said, Here, hold my sweet tea. Watch this. Now, and I, and I say that, you know, in jest because, you know, God does drink sweet tea. Because, alright, that's another story. It, anyway, when you say something like that and you feel that way, God Himself couldn't sink this ship. Can you imagine the level of arrogance one would have to have? And, and almost, um, I think, a, a misunderstanding or a lack of knowledge of God to make such a statement, to say that what we have constructed with our hands as finite human beings, even an almighty God has not enough power to come against what we've built. That is, that is gross idolatry. I'm so much smarter and stronger and better than God Himself. He couldn't sink this ship. That's the same attitude that, that resides right here in this people. They think, well, we're so well defended, there's nothing anyone can do to us. Another area of pride they had was their strong allies, covenant partners, so to speak. Verse 7, the men of your covenant... God says, they're going to send you to the border and the men that are at peace with you, they're going to deceive you and overpower you. In other words, they're going to break their covenant. They're not going to be true to their word. So even though they say, yeah, we've got an agreement, we're good, they're going to go back on it. So their word's no good. That's another area of pride. The last one is exceptional wisdom. And so you see what God's going to do to their wisdom in verse 8 and verse 9. On that day, declares the Lord, I'm going to destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau. And so it goes like this. Well, you know, I know God says this in His Word, and I know that uh, a lot of people believe what God says, but they're just not, uh, folks that believe what God says, they're just not, uh, they're not intelligent enough to really understand how life works. So I'm, I'm so much smarter than that. You know, I, I, uh, I had someone tell me, uh, I, I believe I was, I think it was out of high school, I think I was in college at this point, maybe just almost ready to finish college, and having a conversation about uh, the truth claims of Scripture versus other theories in, in uh, theories of creation and theories of different truths in the world and and that he actually said to me, well, you know, I've just, I'm, I'm too smart to believe stuff like that. It just sounds like a fairy tale. So what, you know, you're too smart. Um, you know, go read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. Foolishness. I'm, I'm, I've just had the courage, you know, to to uh, use my intellect and, and research, and, and I'm just I'm too smart to believe nonsense like the Bible. God says He's going to destroy that type of false wisdom. So everything that these people are relying on, as far as their strength and what is fueling their arrogance and their pride, it's all going to be destroyed. And, and 
just as a side note, that's always what happens. In, in human history, that's what happens when people, finite human beings, believe that they know better than God. It always happens that way. It's just a matter of time before it is demonstrated that that's not the case. Right? So the pride of Edom is going to be their undoing. The second section here, the second paragraph, talks about sin. We're going to see about the sin against a brother. The, this is the uh, kind of alluding to the story I began with. Uh, there's a way that siblings relate to one another, and there's a way that they should and shouldn't relate to one another. This is an example of how uh, Jacob and Esau were at odds. Esau was uh, rebelling against Jacob because he was following God and he was receiving all the blessing. Well, his family line has perpetuated that feeling. And when you get to verse 10 down to verse 14, you see the sins against from one brother against another brother. Now, I found this story that kind of illustrates how that can be resolved and healed between two, two men. There was a fellow, I don't know if you remember this guy, his name's Chuck Colson. He was on President Nixon's staff and, uh, when he was president, and he also founded a group called Prison Fellowship. He actually used to do a radio program on Christian radio, uh, Chuck Colson, Prison Fellowship. Well, he was in Indiana, and he was doing a seminar for the Indiana State Prison System. And after the seminar, he was, he was going to leave because he had, I think, you know, like two hours. He had to get on a plane, and he was going to go meet with the governor in Indiana. So he was trying, he finished his little presentation there at the prison, and he was trying to leave, get all his volunteers, everybody together so they could go. And this one volunteer kept kind of lingering back, and he was talking to one of the inmates. And this particular inmate was on death row. Now, at this particular prison, just the week before they had gotten there, uh, there had been uh, a death sentence carried out in the electric chair in that prison. And so th here's another inmate who was on death row. And this one volunteer just want kept wanting to stay and talk to this guy. And Colson was like, no, you need to come on. We've got a schedule to keep. You need to, you, we got to go. And he said, no, just a minute. I, I, I want to talk to this guy. He said, time's up, man. We've got we to gotta get going. So then the volunteer said this. Please, this is so important. You see, I'm Judge Clement, and this man, James Brewer, James Brewer was the inmate on death row. Well, they found out that Brewer had just gotten saved, and he's on death row, but now he's become a Christian. So his earthly consequences are not removed. But he knows that regardless of what happens to him, he's, gonna, he's forgiven, he's going to heaven. So this judge, Judge Clement, wanted to stay back and talk to him. And Colson found out this particular judge who was volunteering to be with him today on that day was the judge who had pronounced the death sentence on this inmate, James Brewer, who had now gotten saved. And so that's why he wanted to stay. He said, I sentenced this man to die, but now he's born again, and he's my brother. 
And we want a minute to pray together. So Colson stood just frozen, just watching this scene unfold. Here's a, a criminal, a convicted killer. And here's the judge who presided over his case and pronounced the death sentence for his crimes. And now here this man on death row has gotten saved and the judge and the inmate are now wanting to pray together because they now share a bond that's closer than any human bond. And Colson is just watching. Here's, here's two men. One black, one white. One powerless, one powerful. One condemned to die, the other ju the judge who pronounced the sentence. Yet here they stood holding two sides of the same Bible. Praying to the same God who had forgiven them both. That is the picture of what brothers look like. And yet, in this story, true blood brothers did not share the same relationship between Jacob and Esau. Instead, Esau chose to sin against his brother because Esau is the one son of Isaac. Jacob is the other. Edom is descended from Esau. The Jewish nation descended from Jacob. And there was constant conflict because one was blessed, the other was not. And you remember the, the story of how that interaction played out earlier on in Scripture about how Esau said that Jacob stole his birthright and how when they were born... He grabbed the, you know, grabbed the, the heel of his brother as they were being born. And how the firstborn was typically the one who received the blessing, but in this case it was Jacob instead. James Boyce writes that few great sins happen overnight. Big sins are always built upon little sins. You know, you don't make that first huge leap. There's always something leads to it. In fact, there was a, a group that wrote a song about that a few years back. The group Casting Crowns wrote a song called Slow Fade. And it talked about how uh, all these bigger, more um, destructive decisions are not just individual. They come from a series of smaller decisions. Let, let's say that the, the line for sin is way over there and I'm just slowly creeping toward it. Well, this, that wasn't so bad. No, no major consequences from that decision. So I'll just go a little bit farther and then a little bit farther. And the next thing you know, you've taken all these small steps. You didn't jump from there to here, but now... You're here just the same. And you've made that terrible decision. And you've fallen into a seemingly insurmountable problem. The words of that song, Slow Fade, the bridge after the first and second verse says, The journey from your mind to your hands is shorter than your thinking. Be careful if you think you stand 
you just might be sinking. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray. Thoughts invade, choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. There are seven sins that are accounted for in this text of being uh, a bad brother, not my brother's keeper. All the way from verse 10 to verse 14, it's just a list of sins. Standing aloof when your brother stumbles. Looking down on your brother in his misfortune. Rejoicing over your brother's destruction. Look at the, like verse 11, verse 12. Don't gloat over your brother's day, his misfortune. Don't rejoice over the sons of Judah and their destruction. Don't boast in their distress. Don't enter the gate of my people in their disaster. Don't gloat over their calamity. It's almost as if you, you just see things happening and you're just like, you're laughing. You're almost taking pleasure in the misfortune of your brother. Because you're um, not going to get involved, right? I don't want to get involved. You know what that reminds me of? We see it all the time. It's, it's almost, uh, uh, gosh, I don't know, call it mainstream, whatever you want to call it. Anywhere you look on the internet or social media, here's what you see. Something terrible is happening. Somebody's getting beat up. Somebody's getting bullied. Somebody's getting abused. Somebody's getting robbed. And, and what are people doing? They're not stepping in to help. You know what they're doing? Let me catch a video of that and put it on YouTube. Heaven forbid you drop your phone and help. Right? Well, I, I don't want to get involved. That's not my problem. That's not my business. I, I don't want to get involved in that situation. That, I might get, you know, and I might have a problem. So I'm just going to sit by and video someone else's misfortune instead of helping. What has happened to society? When, didn't, didn't we used to be able to... I'm going to tell, tell you the truth. When I was a child, this is a perfect example. When I was a child, go to the grocery store with your mom. Misbehave in the grocery store. Can I get a witness? Uh, okay, and, and you know what? It wasn't my mama that, that gave me a whipping. Some random stranger come by, smack me. And then, you know what my mama would say? She wouldn't turn and say, how dare you touch my child? She'd say, oh, appreciate that. I didn't see him acting up in the car, so thank you for picking up for me. So it was a group effort. Everybody was disciplining everybody. Right? Because, why? Because they all had the same goal. We want to raise our kids right and so we're going to help each other out if you see something I didn't see take care of it go ahead and I'll, I'll help you out if the time comes some you know random strangers handing out whippets but it's because people cared and now it's no involvement no compassion no brotherly love right no brotherly love what are the consequences of all this this is how this text concludes from verse 15 down to verse 21. And verses 15 and 16 deal with the judgment 
and verses 17 to 21 deal with the deliverance. You have Esau on one hand, Jacob on the other. So verses 15 and 16 talk about the day of the Lord drawing near. And by the way, James Boyce writes a beautiful commentary on this particular part of the, of the passage. He says it's a tragedy of nations that their people somehow think that they're exempt from the judgments that have overtaken other people. If they can't learn from the Bible, they should at least learn from history. Nations fall. Everyone is judged. And the Bible says in verse 15, the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. And look at what it says in the second line. As you have done, it will be done to you. You will receive what is appropriate for your own actions. Your dealings, it says, will return on your own head. So God's judgment is near. In fact, the day of the Lord was not long delayed for Edom because they were judged. It was imminent. And so that did happen just as God said it would. When you get to verse 17, what's the uh, other side of that coin? Judgment for those who have been prideful, who have sinned against their brother, who have not followed the Lord. But then in verse 17, you see that contrast. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. So three things in store for God's people. Deliverance, holiness, and an inheritance. In Israel's case, it was deliverance from earthly enemies. In our case, read Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been delivered. The day of the Lord will also bring holiness because human efforts alone are never going to bring in God's kingdom. And holiness is the one thing that no one can possess apart from Christ. You read Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness. But the day of the Lord is also going to bring an inheritance for God's people. Israel is going to be gathered in the land once given to Abraham. Talking about the host of exiles of the sons of Israel. They're going to be like, uh, they're going to possess the possessions in verse 19. Possess the mountain of Esau. Verse 17, the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. The contrast between the two at verse 18. The house of Jacob is going to be a fire and the house of Joseph a, a, a flame. But the house of Esau will be stubble. For the Lord has spoken. And look at the end of verse 18. There will be no survivor of the house of Esau. But yet all the possessions that will be given to the house of Jacob. It's an inheritance. It reminds you of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 where Paul writes, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. All this looking forward is an example of the deliverance that comes to God's people, the holiness that comes to God's people, the inheritance that comes to God's people. And lest we forget when it seems like this is just taking forever and, and when, is, when is all this going to actually happen? Then we remember a verse like 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise as some count slowness, but He's patient, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance.
if, if the day of the Lord hasn't come yet, it's just because God's giving more and more time to show grace to more and more people that many more will be saved. And, and that's what we want. And so, you look at this text, this, this one minor prophet who wrote a relatively short prophecy that he delivered to God's people. John Salehammer, he was an Old Testament scholar at, at Southeastern Seminary where I went. And here's what he said about Obadiah. I won't read the whole, the whole summary, but basically he says this. He uses other minor prophets like uh, Jonah, which comes right after Obadiah in your Bible. Together, Obadiah and Jonah give the full picture of God's concern for the nations. Because if you recall, what we've just studied shows that there will be judgment on those who turn away from God. Jonah demonstrated that if the people would repent and turn to God, they would be spared, right? That was the, the story of Jonah. So you take those two together, here's what you get. God's going to judge the nations who turn against His people, but He will bless the nations who heed the words of His prophets. But let's not forget what happened to the people in Nineveh where, where Jonah preached. Because less than 150 years later, God had to send another prophet to Nineveh named Nahum. And when Nahum preached there, the people did not repent. And so they ended up getting the consequences for their behavior. So here's the, the takeaway for us. What You might think, okay, all that, I understand what's going on, but what do I do with that? How do I take this truth and apply it to my life? Here, here it is. All right, here's the conclusion. Repentance is not a one-time thing. All right? If you want to think about your Christian life, what, what does it mean to follow Christ for real? Not play a game, not just show up at church and, and check a box because you've warmed a spot on a pew. That's not the Christian life. Okay? Just because we repent one time and we're blessed rather than cursed does not mean we get a free pass after that. The Christian life is a life of repentance. And the evidence of a transformed heart is a persistent pattern of conviction and repentance and forgiveness. It's not a one-time occurrence. Yes, your salvation, when you trust in Christ, you are saved forevermore and you don't have to continually uh, so-called receive Christ uh, day after day. You don't lose your salvation. If you're genuinely saved, you are always genuinely saved. That's how, that's how the gospel works. People sometimes say, once saved, always saved. I don't like that. I say, if saved, always saved. If it's genuine... God's never letting you go. And that's important to, to know. That's what the Bible teaches. But our lives as Christians, it's a life of repentance. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Psalm 51, 17. It's a posture it's a posture of our hearts. We don't 
get convicted of our sin one day and repent and say, all right, I never have to do that again. We live a life of being sensitive to the Holy Spirit of God, listening for the still, small voice, giving in to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and then repenting of our sins. First time one time, last week, and Wednesday night. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just, faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's a promise. And it does uh, an incredible work in our hearts when we follow what Jesus says to do. So my, my prayer for all of us is that we wouldn't take for granted God's grace and forgiveness. We wouldn't just say, all right, I checked that box. I'm good. I don't have to do that ever again. It's a daily life. It's a, life is a daily struggle. And life in Christ is a daily picking up of my cross and following Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.